Good morning. Really glad I get to follow that and be here. Um, super exciting. Uh, my name is Jared. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Olive Branch. Uh, you guys, you should have all gotten a, a Lego piece on your way in. If you didn't, um, there'll be some uh, at the tables uh, at that time in the service when it comes up. But if you're someone, or better yet, if the person next to you looks like someone that maybe can't handle holding onto a Lego for the next 30 minutes, like they're going to eat it or lose it or throw it at someone, just going to take it from them now. Just make that, just make that decision for them. Maybe you can confess that yourself. Just, you know, let them hold it. Uh, uh, don't lose it. If you do lose it or eat it or whatever, we, we do have extra. Just try not to eat too many. Um, so, yeah, so, so Legos. All right, so here we go. Uh, on my desk, I have a Lego toy that I keep on my desk. Because, like, anybody who has a desk of some kind where they do work, typically you decorate it in some way, shape, or form. You put things there that mean stuff to you photos or whatever. I have family photos, and I have uh, stuff for my, my favorite sports team, so I've got some angel stuff. This is a, a little Mike Trout Lego figurine thing that my daughter, yeah, 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 go Angels. Um, uh, hopefully next year they can get the best player in baseball in the playoffs. Okay, uh, and so anyways, it's a whole different sermon. Not even really a sermon. That's just a soapbox. Anyways, um, stick to the notes, Jared. All right, so I keep this on my desk. My daughter got me this toy, um, and every time she, my, she's five, every time she comes in my office, she looks at the toy, and she looks at me, and she's like, Dad, like, why, haven't, why haven't you opened your toy yet? Like, I can teach you how to play with a toy if you need to know. And I don't know how to tell her that, honey, this is how adults play with toys. We, we keep them wrapped, and we look at them, and we admire them, and this is how we do. And to be honest with you, Legos a little bit frustrate me. Um, because, right, when I was a kid, I'd get a couple of Lego sets, and I didn't get too many, because you would get, you get the Lego set, and, and it comes with, you know, all the Legos that you need, and a picture of what it is you're going to build, and instructions on how to build it. And I would, I would open up those instructions, and I would look at those instructions, and I would just be like, I, I don't have time to read these. I just want to build the toy. I don't want to read. My Reading is not fun, and I know what you're thinking, Jared, it's just pictures for instructions, and, but I didn't have time for that as a kid, so I'd throw the instructions away, and I would try, I would just look at the final picture, and I would try to build the toy the way that I wanted, and, and I would ignore the instructions completely, and so because I did that, there was always a few pieces left over, or it just wasn't built correctly, and I'd get frustrated and just build it, build what I wanted. I would build the toy my own way and do it the way that I wanted. I think that this is how we go through life. We have this life that, that we're given, right? And we're trying to build this good life. We want to have a good life. We want to have a successful life. And so we build it our own way, doing our own things, what feels right, trying to correct it along the way, building our own life, even though we know none of us in this room are really experts or know how to build the perfect life. We all need a little bit of help in some way, shape, or form. And that's the issue that we're going to, as we go through uh, the scripture today that in Acts, that we're going to see that, that there's this, this issue and tension of, are we willing to admit that we don't know how to build the perfect life? Um, if you remember uh, last week, uh, last week uh, Tim was up here and he spoke on the passage just before this in Acts, and it ended with kind of a cliffhanger, right? It was Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up, and all of a sudden all the apostles get the ability to start speaking in different languages represented from all the different people who are around them from the different countries coming to celebrate Pentecost, right? And, and it ends in the last verse with people saying they're drunk. Like, that's it. All these guys who are speaking these languages, they're just 
they're drunk, right? This assumption is made about them. And here's the thing. Whenever an assumption is made, usually you need some kind of explanation to follow, right? If anybody assumes anything about you, right or wrong, oftentimes we feel like, well, we need to explain A, why they're wrong, or B, like to justify why we are the way we are, right? We have to provide an explanation for the assumption. And so that's what we're going to get into right now. We're going to deal with the explanation of the assumption that is made, which is these apostles, they're just drunk. They've had too much to drink. They've been been hitting the sauce a little too much today, and they're just jabbing like crazy, and so they're drunk. And so here's the explanation that is given. Uh, We're going to be in verse 14, Acts 2, 14. I'm going to read up through 21. We're going to get all the way through 41 today. Um, you can read in the Bibles under the seats uh, that you're in and or on the, the church app or any other way, your own Bible. But Acts 2, verse 14 through 21. So the, here is the explanation to the assumption that these guys are drunk. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose. Since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And so he now quotes uh, the prophet Joel from the Old Testament. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So here we get this explanation for the assumption, right? They're drunk. Here's the explanation. The explanation is this. First, it's too early in the morning, he says. It's much too, we can't be drunk. It's too early. It might be five o'clock somewhere, but it's not five o'clock here. I can tell you that, right? Because for them, it's Pentecost. So they would have been fasting and they wouldn't have been allowed to break that fast until much later in the morning. So like, not only have we not drinking anything, but we haven't even eaten anything. If anything, like accuse us of being hangry. But what you are seeing is not the result of alcohol. And then he goes on to explain further, what you're actually seeing here is the result of something that God promised a long time ago. This is the moment that Joel talked about when when God said that I will pour out my spirit on all who call on my name. We are able to speak in different languages right now because God's spirit is upon us. That's his explanation, right? So why why is it though that, that, that they didn't jump to that conclusion on their own first? Well, if you think about it, us as people, right? When anybody comes along maybe in a job that you have or in a class or whatever that you're good in a subject right and you feel like an expert you've been in it longer and this noob comes in this rookie just comes in and does whatever it is you do your job better than you and like gets a promotion before you and you have kind of two responses that you can do in that moment the first is you which very few people actually do is go teach me your ways How is it that you are so good at this when I've been doing this so long and you're new and you appear to be better? Like, how how are you doing this better than me? 
And the other, which I think is more common for us, is we just kind of dismiss them. Ah, they don't really know, or they just got lucky, or they know the owner, or whatever, right? Or you know what, good for you, that'll work for you, but I've been doing it long enough. This way works for me. I'm going to keep doing it my way. I'm going to keep doing this my way. We are stubborn people, right? And so he has to kind of deal with this assumption in this moment and say, listen, don't be stubborn. This isn't something that you should just dismiss as something as insignificant, but you should recognize the significance of this moment. Because it is huge. And he has, he wants them to, he has to deal with their assumptions so that he, or that they would listen to what he has to say next. And here's what he says next. Acts uh, 2, 22 through 36. This is a lot of scripture. I'm just going to read a couple verses and then kind of skip to the end part. So please read this on your own. I'll point out some observations after. But go back and read this and study this on your own later. So Acts uh, 2, 22 up through 36 um, is, is what he wants them to hear. He's dealt with the assumption so that they might now listen. Okay, they're not drunk. Because no one's going to listen to a drunk person teach you, right? If you walked into a college classroom and your professor's drunk, you're probably not going to stay. Well, you might stay for entertainment, but not to learn, right? So he, he convinces them. We're not drunk. So listen to what we're about to say. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Right? And then at the end, he kind of ends with this, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This whole section, verse 22 through 36, what it is is kind of, it's the first part of the gospel. It's the gospel part one. And what he does in it through this whole thing is he's explaining and answering the question, who is Jesus? Right? And he starts out with Jesus, a man from Nazareth. And he ends with, Jesus is the Christ. He goes from man to Messiah. And he walks them through this process to see that, starting with man to the Messiah. And what's really, really, really interesting is that he starts intentionally with referring to Jesus as a man from Nazareth. Because for his audience, that's their perspective. That is their perspective as who, is of who Jesus is. Back then, what mattered most about you was what your name is and where are you from. Who are your people, right? That's their perspective as Jesus. They knew that he was real and that he was a dude from Nazareth. So Peter, in explaining who Jesus is, he starts with their perspective. So often though, right, like what we hear or what we hear a lot of people who think of church and Christians when the gospel shared with them when people talk about who Jesus is, oftentimes they just go straight to the end. Hey, Jesus is Lord, he's sitting at the right hand, he died for you, repent or go to hell. And we don't acknowledge what their perspective of Jesus is in that moment. I think that Peter specifically started with their perspective because of a conversation that he had with Jesus. There's this interaction that, that uh, is in Matthew 16 that we're going to look at right now that that Jesus has that I believe sort of directed the way Peter started out this gospel presentation. So back in uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew's gospel, um, chapter 16, verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am. 
And Simon Peter, the same Peter who's giving this sermon, which was technically the first sermon at the first church service in Acts that we're looking at, this same Peter replies and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That interaction... I believe Jesus was looking ahead to this moment. This is when Simon gets the name Peter, the rock. And this is the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on. And this is the same rock that is giving the message, the first message ever given when the Holy Spirit shows up. In this moment, and in that conversation, when Jesus was talking about this moment, when he would give this first message, Jesus points out, Peter, it is important for you to know who I am. You need to know who I am. But it's also important for you guys to know what other people's perspective of me is. And you need to start there. See, when we share Christ, we have, we have to start and we have to acknowledge what is the perspective of Jesus that the person we're talking to about Jesus carries. Because if we just jump to the end, we're saying, I don't care what you think. I don't care where you're at. You're wrong. Just get to the end. Right? And so what do people say about Jesus. Who do people nowadays say who, who Jesus is, all right? Um, and this is a list of people who aren't believers yet, right, who don't recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, people say he didn't exist, made up, never existed, just made up by people who uh, wanted to influence and control and manipulate people through religious guilt, all right? Um, others might say, uh, this is what we have, this Jesus in the Bible, is a mythical version of a real dude who lived, right? Of a real historical person. It's just a mythical version of a real historical person is one perspective someone might have. Uh, another one is, ah, this Jesus, yeah, he was real, but he was just really just a great leader in cause, in justice. A little bit crazy, had some weird thoughts, thought he had powers, but for the most part understood that people needed to be loved. He was a leader in cause, in justice. Uh, another one is, is that, He's just another religious teacher. You got Mohammed and Buddha and Jesus, and they all walk into a bar, and that's how the story goes, right? Like, he's just another one of those religious teachers. That's it. No, no, nothing else. He's, he's not actually powerful. Um, and then the last, probably, perspective is he's our emergency contact. Yeah, you know, sometimes life gets so hard and so difficult. I actually pray to this guy that I don't even know is really there or not. But, you know, I ask him for that job or those lotto numbers or whatever, you know, and, and he's my emergency contact, right? And so this is kind of the perspective that people in today's culture carry. And we have to acknowledge that. And I just want to say, if, if you're one of those people in this room or if you know anybody uh, in this room, if you have enough faith, I'll tell you this and you can share this with, with others. If you have enough faith to believe that George Washington was our first president of the United States, then you have enough faith to believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. The evidence is there. The same type of evidence is there for both. There is evidence that Jesus is there. You just have to look at the evidence. You just have to seek the evidence. And you're like, okay, well, I'll acknowledge and say that Jesus is real and existed, but like miracle stuff, like I don't believe in that. Well, let me just say, if God is real and he created everything, then for sure miracles are possible. And not to get like into a whole apologetic sermon or anything, but if you went home today after church, right, you go home, you walk in to your, to your home, and all your furniture is moved all over. Like, I'm not talking a couple inches. I mean, like, outside furniture, inside, inside, outside, different rooms. Like, you would not walk in and go, you know, it's been a windy week. 
Guess I left the window open. There must have been a draft. Uh, and you know what? I like it. The feng shui feels good. Thank you, universe. I will, I will rest in my new furniture location, right? No, you're going you're gonna to panic. Someone's in the house. Someone moves stuff. You would automatically assume someone moved the stuff based on the way that it was laid out and how stuff was moved. When you look at the universe, when you study the universe, through science and creation, everything around us, when you study it, science shows it is most likely that there is a creator. That there is a creator. When you look at the evidence, you will see the explanation is there's a God. But you have to be willing to look and do the work and not just sit in your assumption. So what is the evidence that Peter is telling the crowd in this section? What does Peter tell the crowd? What evidence does he walk them through? Well, he starts with their perspective, right? Jesus is a man. He was a man from Nazareth. Okay. But this man was attested by God through signs and miracles. This dude did stuff that no dude should be able to do, right? He did signs and miracles, which proved that God sent him. And guess what? You knew him, is what he tells them. You all knew him. This is likely the same, a lot of the same people who are here, hearing this message at Pentecost, were there 50 days prior, uh, celebrating the Passover. And there a week before that, on what we call Palm Sunday, welcoming Jesus in as their Lord, or as their Savior, as their Messiah, shouting Hosanna, waving palm branches, save us. These are a lot of those same people. They knew this guy. This isn't some third-person account. They didn't hear about it through some, uh, you know, fake news story. This is like they knew this guy. They knew him and they saw these miracles. And then Peter tells them, and God handed Jesus's life over to you for you to decide what to do with. He gave you the Messiah and he said, here, here's his life, you decide. And Peter reminds them, you killed him. I think it's interesting that Peter leaves out that he denied him three times. Uh, I personally feel like this would have been a great moment to be vulnerable and connect with his audience, but apparently he didn't take a sermon class. Uh, to be fair, this is his first sermon, so we'll cut him some slack. But he reminds them, you killed Jesus. But guess what? He rose from the dead. And this wasn't an accident. This was on purpose. This was something that David prophesied about in this section, which I didn't read. There's a prophecy that Peter uh, reads about David. And people believe that this was something David said about himself. And David references that God told him, hey, you will not let your Holy One's body decay. And Peter points out, I'm pretty sure David died and his tomb is still here to this day. So Peter was, or, or David wasn't talking about himself, he was talking about the Messiah. And Jesus is that person, and this is something that David prophesied. And guess what? We all saw him resurrected. We saw him. We saw him die, and then we saw him alive days later, is what he tells him. We saw it. And now he sits, he ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God as Lord in Christ. He takes them on this journey through the evidence to go from man to Messiah. What he does here is he's connecting the dots for them, right? It's kind of like when, uh, uh, if you've ever been there, like I have, where you turn in like a test or better yet, like a research, you do a research paper. I did a research paper and like you feel like for the first time I felt like this is it. This is going to be the one 
I'm going to get the A. I feel it. Like, I studied extra hard. I put actual research in uh, for this research paper. It's not just an opinion thing. And, and I, did, I did a really good job, and I churned it in, and I, like, drop it off, and, like, walk away from the teacher, like, yeah, you're a, just write it on. They don't even read it. It's good. And then, right, and then I get the paper back, and I look at it, and on there, big red F, like, circled, like, you don't need to circle it. Thanks for the, I can see the F, but thanks for the circle for the emphasis of the failure. I appreciate that. And in my head, like, I don't understand how I thought I had an A. How did we go from A to F? And so I go to the teacher, and it's like, hey, teach, what, I, this is an A. Why did, why did he get an F? Like, I don't understand. I'm here, you're saying here, doesn't make sense. And the teacher goes, well, Jared, um, you didn't put your name on there, and you're the only one to do that. Uh, so it was easy to figure out that this was your paper, and you spelled a lot of words wrong, and not only that, you didn't even, like, write on the topic that you were supposed to write on, and connects all the dots of, like, oh, yeah, okay, F, I guess. Yeah, and when you have that moment, when you realize that you failed, you're like, at least for me, I'm always like, my next thing is, so how do I fix this? Like, can I extra credit? Can I redo it? Like, because I did try, and so I want to make it right, right? I, 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 want, I want to make this right. I want to fix it. And so what happens for them when the dots are connected by Peter? Let's look at the next couple of verses and see their reaction. The dots are connected. He shows them the evidence. Verses uh, 37 to 38. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so what's their response? Their response is the same as ours. When we realize we've failed or messed up, the response is, can I fix this? How, how do I fix this, right? Like when we hurt someone, like, well, if they deserve it, we're like, deal with it, you know? But like when we actually feel bad and we've hurt someone or we've done something wrong, we, we feel the need to do something to make it right. Right? We feel like we have to actually actively do something to make it right. And that's what they're asking. What do we need to do to make this right? What do we do? Tell us. They're cut to the heart. I mean, they genuinely felt, man, that we messed up. We killed the Messiah. I mean, he's alive, but so what do we do? And he tells them, repent and be baptized. And that had to have blown their mind. Because for them, that was like step one into getting ready to make something right. You see, baptism for them, baptism was not something that Jesus introduced. It was something that he repurposed. Baptism had been around and existed for a while by this point. For them, it was something they did to become ceremonial clean. It was something they did to to really, like if they did sin or whatever, they'd have to bring a sacrifice forward and they would go through a baptism process first to make themselves ceremonial clean and pure and symbolize their cleanness, that they are coming before God. It was something that they did to prepare themselves to do the act that would make the wrong right. And here they're being told, you don't have to do the act. The act's already been done for you. That act was what Jesus did when he died on the cross. You don't need to do the act. You just need to change your mindset. You need to repent and be baptized in Jesus' name. 
And this repentance is literally what he's saying is you just need to admit that this life that you've been building, you don't know how to build on your own. You just need to admit to God, God, I have been building my life my way. And I recognize that it's not right. So teach me, God, how to build my life the right way. I'm trusting you in Jesus' name. I'm going to baptize in Jesus, right? And, and for us, if we're honest today, that's still hard for us to believe and wrap our heads around. Because it's still in us that, that to fix a right or to fix a wrong, we have to do a right. And, uh, and we kind of somewhat, people kind of live in this, like, I believe in karma world. Uh, if, I'm gonna, if I want good to happen, I need to do good. And if, 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 if I do bad, then bad's going to happen. And I get it. It makes sense, right? If I, do, if I punch you in the face or steal something from you, I'll probably go to jail. Bad action, bad consequence, right? But we see all the time good things happening to bad people and bad things happening to good people. Last week, uh, we were at Six Flags. It took my high schoolers to Six Flags. And um, uh, it was awesome. At the end of the night, it's Halloween season, so they have something called Fright Fest where people come out, like, decked out, like, in dead clown, zombie clown things and trying to scare people. And they would, like, intentionally focus on, like, the three-year-old little kids. Like, there's very special people who do this for a living. Uh, it's like they're bored scaring adults. So I'm going to give you nightmares forever. Um, anyways. Uh, and they just kind of look at the parents like, you brought them here. Uh, and so they're scaring kids. And so uh, me and my students, we go, and we get in line for Lex Luthor's Drop of Doom. And the students are talking, and we get in the single rider line because the regular line was two hours long. We didn't want to wait for that. And so we're in the single rider line, and the students are talking about how, like, they're scared of all the clowns and stuff running around, and how it's freaking them out. And this guy who's by himself, he's got nobody else with him, just kind of jumps in on the conversation and is like, I, I'm not scared of that stuff. And they're like, what? You're not scared? Like, why aren't you scared? And his name's Yasser, and he, he come to find out he was born and raised in Iraq. He's actually just a few weeks uh, younger than me. Um, and super awesome guy, super nice guy. And, uh, and he just shares how when he was 17, right after 9-11, that, you know, he lived in Iraq. So he essentially lived in, in a war zone. And so he saw, the first time he saw someone get killed in front of him, it, it definitely affected him. But that he saw that kind of stuff so much that he just became numb to it. And so being there at Six Flags, like, seeing people wearing masks, like, is, like, nothing to him. And this really cool conversation breaks out between him and the students, and I'm just kind of sitting back, like, watching, like, a proud youth pastor. Uh, and they're, like, the students talking to him about faith and the Christ and all this stuff. And he, he kind of goes in and he explains, he goes, you know, I just believe in karma. Do good, good happens. Do bad, bad happens. And I'm like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that you genuinely believe that. And so the first thing that kind of came to mind, and this, I jumped into the conversation at this point, I was like, yes, yeah, sir. And like, let me tell you a story. A few years ago, um, my wife and I, we just had our youngest daughter, and she was our first baby. So like, the, you know, you protect the first one, safe, bubble wrap, everyone after that. It's like, yeah, go ahead, hurt yourself. Because uh, you learn. They can bounce off things very easily, and they, they come right back. They're good. Uh, and, and so, but the first child, right, you're super protective. You don't normally just let them around strangers or dangerous people. Well, around this time, we found out my dad, who had not been really around in my whole life, was not a good dad, and had moved around and was out of state, um, found out that he was actually back in state. Uh, and, uh, but he had lost all his jobs. He had no money left and just felt like he was a total failure in life. And he was struggling with substance abuse, and he was suicidal. He wanted to kill himself. And so my wife and I said, you need to live with us. Like, we know God values you and loves you. So we, we, and we want you to know that, that your life has value and that God loves you. 
And so live with us. And I said, yeah, sir, do you think that that was a good thing? And he goes, yeah, that was a really good thing. And I'm like, you know what happened? You know what he did? A few, few months later, after we got him a job and got him connected and all this stuff, he, he left and he abandoned us. And, and no one in the family now to this day can get a hold of him. And, and, he, blames, and he blames me. He blames me. I did, I did nothing bad to him. I wasn't perfect, but all we did was show him love. I'm like, yes, sir. I get people randomly through Facebook who'd be like, hey, you don't know me, but I met your dad. He talks about you. You should reach out to him. And I have to tell these people, I try. He won't. We loved him. We showed him love. He's the reason. He, he won't talk to us. I said, yes, sir. We did a good thing, and, and he did this bad thing in return. Like, karma, that's not karma, man. And he goes, yeah, but he's your parent. You see the scar on my hand? My mom stabbed me when I was a kid. That's just our parents. We have to respect them. They're our parents. They can kind of do whatever. And, like, I was like, oh, how do you respond to that? I was like, that was hard to hear, but at the same, like, <laughs> sorry, man. Like, even if they're your parents, like, that doesn't, yes, respect your parents. But that you can't justify the evil that they do to you. And yet, even though we know that and we recognize that, we still, as people kind of obsess with, we have to do a good to erase the wrong. And that's not what Peter says. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, you don't have to do a good. All you have to do is just repent. Admit to yourselves, God, I have been building this life my own way. And I admit that I have not been doing a good job. And if you created everything, God, then you must know the perfect way to live this life. And so help me build this life your way, God, and not mine. That's that repentance. That's it. And then be baptized in Jesus' name, trusting in Christ, right? And then when that happens, we receive the Holy Spirit, this promise of the Holy Spirit, where basically, right, so on Pentecost, Pentecost, the day that is celebrating when Jews receive the Ten Commandments, right, when, when essentially God said, here is your instructions on how to build a nation. Here is your identity. On a day when they were celebrating the day that they found out how to build their nation, the Holy Spirit shows up and God says, here is how to build your life. I give you my spirit to instruct you, to teach you, to guide you, to mold you every single day. To build an amazing life. And what happens next after they hear this promise? Of this response of what they're told to do. Last couple of verses here. 40 and 41. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. A few quick observations. The first thing that Luke writes down when he's in this, in this essentially research paper on how the church started that he's sending to Theophilus, um, he writes down, okay, Peter said a lot more words, but you know how sermons go. They're like four hours long, so this is the gist of it. He said a lot more. He said a lot more. In other words, people don't repent easy. Am I right? Like, we, we don't easily change our minds, especially the longer we've been stuck in a way. It is not easy for us to admit that we've been doing it wrong. It takes a lot of words. Certainly much, many more, many much more words. I told you English was hard. Uh, certainly more words than a sign that says repent or go to hell. We need to start with their perspective of who they think Jesus is. 
and be willing to be patient and graceful and use as many words as needed to walk them through the process of knowing who Christ really is, who Jesus really is. The next thing he says is to save yourself from this generation. In other words, this isn't just a later conversation. This isn't just that when you die so you can go to heaven. This is now, starting today, you begin to receive, you will have the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit will be in you and with you, teaching you, guiding you, telling you how to build your life right. In other words, you get to have a taste of heaven now. That doesn't mean, by the way, that there will be no pain or no suffering. As a matter of fact, Jesus promises probably more pain and suffering. But it's a now conversation, not just a later conversation. And then the last thing is, this is those who accepted were about 3,000. Usually when I go through this, I'm like, man, 3,000 people, like, oh, what a legend. That'd be awesome, man, to help lead 3,000 people to Christ in one sermon. So until 3,000 people show up, I'm just going to keep going. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) Right? That would be amazing. But what I usually miss is that it says those who accepted, meaning not everybody accepted this. Not everybody chose to believe. Not everybody said, God, I admit that I can't build my life, that I've been doing it wrong. Please teach me. I trust in Christ. I trust in Jesus. Not everybody said that. Not everybody is going to accept the message right away. Don't feel defeated in that. It takes time and patience. We are stubborn, stubborn people, right? Like, why do, why do we live the way that we do? Why, why do we continue to live the way that we're living, even when it's destructive and it doesn't work? Um, quick illustration. When I was 12, uh, I, I had the job one night to watch all the neighborhood kids uh, so the adults could do whatever adults do. And, and so I had to make them dinner. I'd never cooked before outside of a microwave and, or a toaster. And, he, and so they're like, Jared, you're going to make mac and cheese. So I, and they give me the mac and cheese boxes, crap, you know, the blue box mac and cheese. And, uh, and they take off and I'm like, all right, kids, here we go. And, and, and so I made the mac and cheese and I give them the mac and cheese. And they're like, Jared, this is the best mac and cheese we've ever had in our life. And I'm like, well, I've never even cooked before. I'm getting a show. I'm getting a cooking show. I'm in a cookbook, a mac, all mac and cheese recipes. I'm a legend already, right? And so their parents come. They pick them up. How, how were they? Was everything okay? And the kids, mom, Jared makes the best mac and cheese. Your mac and cheese is so gross. His is so good. I'm like, all right, take it easy. Like, they need to pay me still. Their parents come to me like, what kind, what kind of mac and cheese did you make? And I'm just like, the blue box. They're like, that's what we make. I don't did you add something to it? What did you do different? And I was like, I, I just followed the instructions. That was it. I just did it the way that the creator of this food designed it to be made. That's all I did. <laughs> right? And so what did they do? Did they change their ways of cooking blue box mac and cheese? No, they did not because they're parents. And when you're a parent and you get home, and I don't, I'm not kidding you, I dealt with this yesterday. You get home, your kids are nuts, they're eating your ankles, they're so hungry, and you just, you want to feed them quick. You don't have time to measure out the milk and the cheese and the butter and all this stuff. So you just eye it, throw it in there, and, you know, channel your inner, like, you know, chef TV host and get it going. And you feed the kids and get them done, put them in their cages so you can relax, right? Like... <laughs> just so you can have your time and just be good and chill. It's hard to change. But this life that we live is worth changing 
and modeling after the one who lived it best. And nobody lived this life better than Jesus. He lived it so well that he died. And I know you're like, everybody dies, Jared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he died and he rose again and never physically died again after that. If you can die and rise from the dead days later and then never physically die again, you probably never had to die in the first place. And he didn't. And so why, why did he die if he never had to? He died because he loves you. He loves every single one of us. He chose to, to take that punishment, to say, you know what? Yes, we do need to right wrongs, but you can never do enough to right that wrong. And so I will do it for you on the cross. And just trust that. Believe that. Admit that you don't know how to build this life on your own. And receive my spirit so I can teach you how to build this life. We're going to end with an opportunity to um, interact together. Uh, Last week in my life group, um, we were talking, are we a church that creates a space, uh, are we a church that's vulnerable? Are we a church that creates space for vulnerability? I think in life group, right, in a life group, in a small group of people, it's a little bit easier to be vulnerable and to share things and admit that you don't have it all together and to say things like, I don't know how to build the perfect life. Right, but when we we come to church in a large group and in a lot of people, it's a little bit harder to show our flaws and to say, I'm not perfect. Even though we know everybody in here isn't. And so today we're going to practice being vulnerable corporately together. And, and that's what these Lego pieces are for. If, if you didn't get one or, or you ate yours or whatever, there's more. We have four stations around the room. I've got two tall tables here, a tall table in the back there, and there's a shorter table in that back corner. And there's extra pieces there if you, if you can't find yours or whatever, didn't get one. Um, but we are going to come together and we are going to do this act together. We're gonna, I want you all, when this next song starts, just take a moment and just pray to God. And, and if you, there's a few ways that you can do this. If, if, you've, uh, if you've given your life to Christ before and you repented and you said a long time ago or recently or whatever that, God, I know I can't build this life on my own, so help me to build it, then use this time, take a moment, remember that, and thank God. And then take your Lego piece and say, God, and go to the, one of the stations and place it down, symbolizing, I don't know how to build this on my own. I place this on the cross, asking you, God, teach me how to build this life the right way. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ before. you've You've never admitted out loud to God, God, I don't know how to build this life, and I don't really know you that well. But if you created everything, I'm willing to trust that you know the way that this life was supposed to be. And so teach me. Thank you for paying the, the, for making it right through your son Christ on the cross and teach me how to live this life. Or maybe you've been a believer, but there's this area in your life that God's been trying, the Holy Spirit's been working on you, trying to get you to repent of and change your ways in, and, and you've been a little bit stubborn in that area. Use this time now to repent of that, to change your mindset and to say, God, in this area, I've been trying to do it my way. I'm sorry. Help me to do it your way. Help me to do it the right way. And maybe you're not a believer and, and, and you're just, you're not there yet. That's okay. 
takes many works. It takes a long time. It is not easy to change. All of us in here in this room who have given our lives to Christ did not happen the first time someone told us about it. And it wasn't instantaneous. It takes time for most people. And that's okay, but maybe you're at least willing to admit, I don't know how to build the perfect life. I know for certain that I won't live forever and that I will die. So I'll admit that. And I'll place it down saying, I admit that I don't know how to build the perfect life, but I will seek the answers. And I will look at the evidence and I will begin to connect the dots to find the truth and the way to build the perfect life. Spoiler alert, it's going to be Jesus. So right now, let's pray. And as you're ready, have that conversation with God. And during this next song, head to any one of the stations and just place it down on the cross however you, however you like. God, we, we thank you for this message gave through the apostles of this first church service, God. Um, God, man, it is so hard for us to admit when we failed or to admit when we're wrong on the outside, even when we know it and recognize it on the inside. God, I, pr I pray that you help all of us right now in this moment to enjoy seeing everybody in here together admit collectively that we don't know how to build the perfect life. But God, you do. So God, we place these Lego pieces down, admitting that we need you and what you did on the cross, God. So use your spirit to teach us how to build the best life. It's your name we pray.